0: Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God, our Father, from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Don't kid yourself for a single minute. The devil is smarter than you. The devil is stronger than you. And even at your most creative and sinister and manipulative moments, the devil is craftier than you. The devil knows God's word far better than you and I could ever hope to as well. He knows it so well that he can employ it whenever he wishes, often by taking it out of context or changing it just a little bit in order to make it untrue. Sometimes he does this out of the mouths of unbelievers. Sometimes he does it using pleasant and well-dressed and articulate preachers on television. Sometimes even does it within the church, where pastors or other people seek to achieve their own goals and ends with it, rather than the Lord's. It all started with the twisting and denial of God's word to Adam and Eve in the garden, and it continues even to this day. We see it this morning in our gospel lesson as Jesus departs from John's baptism in the fullness of the Holy Spirit, and he faces temptation in the desert. Satan throws everything he has at Jesus. Forty days of relentless temptation, an overwhelming onslaught of evil that neither you nor I could withstand for even a moment. From what we know in the Scriptures, Satan didn't seem to make much of a direct effort against Jesus during the first 30 years of his life. And that might seem rather strange to us, tempted as we are each day, although usually of a more subtle sort than we see in the Gospel today. Yet, it seems that other than Satan's attempts to destroy the newborn Savior through the evil of Herod, or perhaps maybe Mary's questioning of Jesus' presence in the temple when he was 12, there's no real evidence that the devil paid much attention to Jesus those first 30 years. We must never forget, Satan is both a coward and an opportunist. For the first 30 years, of course, it's possible that Satan might not have felt all that threatened by Jesus. After all, he lived quietly with his earthly family. He was obedient to his mother and to Joseph. He probably worked to help support the family. He worshipped regularly in the synagogue, and he probably didn't. We know he certainly wouldn't have provided Satan any opportunities for others to take offense at him. Satan, if he had knowledge of Jesus kept it under wraps. He may not have even known Jesus' true identity at that point. We must remember that although the devil is powerful and intelligent and dynamic, he does not have God's attributes of omnipotence, omniscience, and omnipresence. At 30 years old, though, Jesus goes to the Jordan, and there he's baptized by John. The descent of the Holy Spirit and the the words of the Father from above and the testimonies of John himself leave no doubt as to Jesus' identity as God's Son. Even a dolt of a demon like Wormwood probably would have figured out the trouble was brewing at that point. Now Jesus is led by the Spirit out into the desert. And the devil takes notice. Often when God sends his own out into the wilderness it is for their own good. It's to cleanse them and to renew them and to strengthen them to do His will, although they certainly faced trials and temptations while there. It was so for Adam and Eve after they were cast out of the garden. It was so for Abraham, for Moses and the people of Israel, and for Elijah. If this Jesus was the anointed Christ, it was necessary that He go out into the wilderness and become more fully united with sinful and tempted humanity. Jesus' temptation was every bit an indicator that he was God's incarnate Son, as was his baptism, as was his commission by the Father and the Holy Spirit. Satan recognized the signs. He saw the danger that Jesus might actually be this promised new Adam, the one who would rise up against him and crush his serpent's head. The Spirit led Jesus, and Satan followed along, nipping at his heels. For 40 days, Jesus ate nothing. He emptied himself and he prepared himself for the duties and the challenges ahead, facing whatever the devil might throw at him to deter him from his appointed mission. Now, we only learn of three specific temptations that took place at the end of the 40 days. But Satan was there all along, nudging and cajoling and hinting that there was a a better deal for Jesus if only... If only. If only. Isn't that what the devil tries to do to us too? It's Satan who constantly presents us with a a glorious and attractive buffet of choices, offering things that are sure to please and to satisfy us for a time, but which are just as sure to damn us for eternity. Deep down, that's always what sin is. The devil offering and us accepting some choice, a choice that differs from what God tells us is right and true and loving and holy. The devil relishes the use of that little word, if, on us. If you do this, then you'll get something that you like. Never mind what God says. At the end of those 40 days, just when Jesus was physically at his weakest in his human nature... Satan turns the temptation up a notch. Jesus had gone out into the wilderness to prepare himself spiritually, but the devil first attacks him at the physical level. He doesn't challenge Jesus directly, he comes at him from another direction, trying to catch him off guard. Now, the devil should already have known that Jesus was the Son of God, for he too heard the words and saw the signs at the Jordan River. As evil and as twisted as Satan is, though, Perhaps he can't recognize or accept the truth that God cannot and will not lie. So, he wants to know for sure whether or not this Jesus truly is his archenemy, the one who from eternity was destined to destroy his power, the one who was prophesied from old to redeem the world from his greedy grasp. Now, the devil didn't want Jesus to turn that stone into a loaf of bread simply to satisfy his hunger and to to break his fast discipline. No, not at all. Satan wanted Jesus to do that as proof that he was God's own true son, to validate his identity. But Jesus had come out into the wilderness to more fully connect himself to the predicament of humanity, He was taking his proper place among us there, experiencing all the temptations that we face and not only deflecting and overcoming them, but showing that he as son of God and son of man truly is Emmanuel, that is, God with us. He is the God who has become flesh and blood to stand alongside you and me, each of us in our own wildernesses of temptation and frustration and weakness and sin. The devil was wise in asking for proof, for then he'd know for sure just who it was he was dealing with. But Jesus refused. Now, it's not that doing such a miracle of turning that stone into bread would have been a sinful act in and of itself. Rather, it would have been doing a miracle at the insistence of a devil, A, a miracle to accomplish Satan's purposes. It was the devil's, I dare you to Jesus. Jesus doesn't take the dare because taking dares is always foolish. They're always meant to manipulate, aren't they? To manipulate the taker of the dare into fulfilling the will of that person who offers it. Jesus responds instead with the Word of God. It is written, man does not live by bread alone. In other words, Satan, what happens to me in the flesh matters. In fact, it matters a a great deal. But what is more important is obedience to the word of God and the will of God, not the satisfaction of the whims of others to impress them or to prove something something to them, certainly not to you. And it's certainly not for the satisfaction of my own fleshly desires. Bent but not yet broken, the devil raises the stakes in the next challenge. He now tempts Jesus with worldly power. Satan knew that the Messiah had come to reclaim the world and to be the king of all creation. He knew that he couldn't possibly defeat the power of God in this battle or in any other, even if he didn't understand or fully comprehend the full and eternal consequences and implications of this outcome. But the devil did know quite well that the Savior's coming to power would require great suffering The scriptures which the devil knows so very well say this quite plainly. And so Satan offers Jesus a shortcut, an easier, a less painful path to lordship. Jesus could have it all at the simple bending of the knee. Avoid the pain, Jesus, the devil whispered. You don't need to be the suffering servant. I've been allowed control of all this. And I'll be happy to give it to you, to do as you please with it. All you have to do, Jesus, is not take it forcibly from me by going through all that suffering, by not going to that cross. You'll get what you want, the world and all those precious souls you desire. I'll get what I want, too, you showing respect to me in exchange for me giving it up peacefully. Peacefully. Jesus doesn't rise to the bait, however. Jesus knows full well, and he would later say quite clearly, that Satan is both a liar and a murderer. The devil uses temptation and false misleading reasoning, first to cloud the truth, and then to kill. Even if his offer of the world to Jesus was genuine, Jesus knows that he can't be trusted. Instead, Jesus again deals with the challenge by applying the scriptures. Worship the Lord your God, and serve Him only. Jesus would indeed become King of kings and Lord of lords, but it would not come by cutting corners or by making compromises with evil, but by passing through the difficult and painful gauntlet of suffering and death on a cross. It would come in obedience to the will of God the Father in heaven, not to the will of Satan, the master of the fallen earth. Jesus held fast, and Satan lost the second challenge as well. For his final challenge, the devil attempted once again to make Jesus demonstrate that he is indeed the Son of God. From the wilderness, Satan takes the Lord to Jerusalem, to the very top of the temple. Here he says once again, Prove it, I dare you. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to protect you. And on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Pretty clever the devil was this time. After twice being defeated by Jesus' use of God's word, Satan now attempts to use the scriptures to his own advantage. He quotes what the prophets had said about the Messiah, how God would certainly protect him but if Satan thought that quoting the Scriptures against Jesus would confuse him, would trip him up somehow, he was sorely mistaken. Yes, surely God the Father would protect him. He would send legions and legions of angels if necessary. But Jesus is the Word of God. He is the Word made flesh. He not only knows the Scriptures perfectly, He is the Scriptures. Every prophecy, every promise, every truth. In tempting Jesus... Satan had endeavored to test the Lord God himself. Thus Jesus answered rightly when he said, It is written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. That not only put an end to this 40-day period of testing and temptation, it demonstrated once and for all that temptation itself, especially temptation of God, is an evil and sinful act. But then the devil has no other way. Deflected, but not yet fully defeated, the devil departs to lick his wounds, to marshal his powers, to sharpen his claws and his fangs, and to practice his cunning on others, at least for a time. Satan will be back and in full fury later on. What do these temptations of Jesus tell us? First of all, we see and learn that the devil is a wise and wily one. He attempts to attack and to deter us when we seek to do good in spiritual things. And as we enter this season of Lent, we might even begin to convince ourselves that this year we're going to do something very worthy and very good for ourselves, if not for God. Perhaps in rebelliousness against Jesus, words from our Ash Wednesday gospel lesson we will contort our faces so that others will see how hard it is for us to give up some habit or some treat for Lent. In a world where hundreds die die daily of malnourishment, we'll consider it a huge sacrifice to skip one meal a week. We'll lament, whether it be loudly or silently, what an inconvenience it is to attend midweek Lenten services. Yes, we, we love to have something to demonstrate to ourselves or to others just how committed it is we are. The devil is always lurking there, he's tempting us to turn good works into bad. Just show a little pride, have a little hope for recognition from others. We do well to guard against the devil during our Lenten journey, but we must always remember that this battle cannot be fought, much less won, apart from the Word who comes to us, apart from the Word who dwells with us and dwells within us. Sometimes when we are weak and we're feeling alone and forsaken in our life, Our own evil thoughts and desires do get the better of us. We forget that the word has been given to us, and we may be tempted to test God for ourselves. We'll demand in our prayers that he prove his existence to us and prove his love by fulfilling our wishes and desires, by conforming himself to our will rather than we to his. In such times when we think we have been forgotten or abandoned by God, when we're in the midst of grief or sickness or anxiety or having financial difficulties or struggling with relationships, the devil knows just how to toy with us. He'll plant thoughts to increase our pain or to heap up our doubts, to turn us away from God and toward dependence upon ourselves or upon the things of this world. At such times, it's a great danger to think that we can do what Jesus did, that is, to fight against temptation and to win. And that might be the most dangerous temptation of all. We hear about Jesus struggling with the devil and coming out on top by using God's Word. We might start to believe that we too can fight this battle and we too can emerge unscathed and even victorious. But the reality of the situation is that we are oftentimes and perhaps always our own greatest enemies. The devil certainly is of great concern, but he only has fertile ground in which to plant his own destructive seeds on account of our propensity to sin, our habit of reasoning or rationalizing our bad behaviors away, of thinking ourselves good enough or smart enough or strong enough or righteous enough. If nothing else, the temptations of Jesus ought to make it clear that We are not God. We are not able to fight off Satan one little bit, much less save ourselves. Only Jesus was able to fight against temptation and win. Only he can enter into the wilderness of our sin where Adam and Eve and all of their children were cast and emerge victorious. His obedience, faithfulness, and righteousness moistened that desert of despair and gave it life-giving blood and cleansing water. He restored paradise to us. As we begin this season of Lent, our first remembrance ought to be that Jesus has come forth as champion over Satan, over sin, and over death. He responded to the devil not with his power, not with his glory, but with truth. That God's Word is truth. That God's Son came full of grace and truth. And that God is God humanity's greatest good. We observe Lent rightly when we do not do so just with obedience or commitment to some Lenten discipline or sacrifice, but when we worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. You mustn't make the mistake of thinking that you and I can fight the devil and win. Place all of your hope and faith instead in Him who Luther wrote about, Christ Jesus, mighty Lord. God's only Son adored. He holds the field victorious. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.